1: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series discussing Michelangelo Mato's book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan take a break from The Underground is Massive to discuss the emergence of Tribal House and its commercial triumph in the late 1990s. Email us at letitrollpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll? And I'm your host Nate Wilcox, and with Ryan Harkness, we're not going to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos as the underground is massive this week. Instead, we're taking a little detour that was suggested by a listener. Uh, thank you, Drew Morris, for suggesting this topic. We're going to be talking about Circuit House. Ryan, what is Circuit House, and why did it not get covered by Brewster and Broughton, or Simon Reynolds, or Matos?
2: Well. I mean, it did get a little bit covered. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life kind of covers it in their high energy chapter, which isn't all high energy. They they, they cover a little bit of what's going on at at, uh, the Continental Baths in New York and stuff like that, which also constitutes a circuit. So they have some of the early history, but they don't touch anything in the late 90s about the actual circuit scene because – circuit is a music genre, but it's also its own party scene. And it's one that I'd say is almost as fascinating as rave. It's got so many ingredients for a good party scene. It's got drugs, sex, money, travel, beautiful people, endless parties. And if you're one of those beautiful people who can tap into it, ride the wave, I'm sure it must be intoxicating for everybody else. You could be a tourist and enjoy it. Uh, but uh, as far as what circuit is, I mean, if you want to boil it down, it's basically uh, an offshoot of Tribal House, and uh, it, it's it's kind of turned into its own kind of segregated uh, music style just on account of the demands of the dance floor uh, at these parties. So,
0: And you didn't mention it's also a party scene that's been dogged by disease, by drug abuse, and allegations of classism. So it's it's got a controversial and complicated history. And I feel a little bit conflict is not the right word. We're going to talk about it. I'm not uncomfortable talking about it. But we're not in the community. So if you're yeah, in the community it, and we say something stupid, apologies. Let yeah, us
2: know. it's definitely difficult because we. Uh, yeah, as, as somebody who who's not gay. Um, it, it's hard for me to kind of come in and, and place statements on this. A lot of the stuff that we're, we're talking about and a lot of the opinions that we share are, are from people from inside the LGBTQ community as well. But even within that community, obviously there's many different voices and, and people with different opinions and, uh, who, who have, you know, said that, uh, some of the, some of the criticisms from inside the scene are completely unfair as well. So I, I think it's, you know, kind of s- similar to the rave scene. In that, uh, you know, it gets a lot of undue flack and then there's, there's other flack that's fair and it is, you know, worth, worth, uh, admitting to, you know, this is a, this is a party scene and just like all party party scenes, no different from, you know, it could be circuit, it could be rave and it could be just the regular, the old club scene. There's a lot of drug use and there's a lot of promiscuity and there's some darkness to it and, uh, that's just life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I buried some loved ones with AIDS and the whole deal. So, you know, it's real stuff. And a lot of people paid a real heavy price. Um, But a lot of people lived some awesome lives and some great music was made. So let's talk about that. And um, in your notes that you put together for me, you, you have this great musical family tree. That you say the musical evolution goes goes from Larry Levan at the Paradise Garage. And you could honestly say it starts earlier than that with Larry LeVan and Frankie Knuckles at the Continental Baths. But Paradise Garage is where this particular style of, of house gets formalized. Then Todd Terry uh, and the hip house movement is the next step in the evolution. And then Masters at Work, who pioneer the tribal house sound. And then Junior Vasquez and Danny Tenaglia, who solidify the sound. Of tribal house and then it reaches this apex commercially around the turn of the millennium with hex hexer hex hector victor calderon peter rahofer and thunderpuss and they are the ones remixing madonna and just blowing this stuff up so this definitely has the classic dynamic of a musical genre that comes out of a deeply underground scene among marginalized people and takes over the world
2: yeah, and most people that know about it, and when our, our fan, Drew Morris, kind of contacted us, he was saying, hey, I was really hoping to hear more about Thunderpuss and Victor Calderon and all those guys. These these are the big artists who had the hits, you know, the stuff that made it onto much music, or as you Americans have, MTV. Um it, Everybody, everybody was probably listening to some of these circuit hits and they didn't even realize it at the time. So that's kind of how big everything got around the late nineties, early two thousands, but all through the nineties, uh, with, with guys like uh, junior Vasquez and, uh, like they they were really taking it taking it to the clubs and and making this tribal house sound big. And for a long time, when I got into the rave scene, we talked about this in many episodes. You've got that split between underground rave and then you've kind of got the the, the house club scene. Tribal house was uh, like ubiquitous everywhere. It was it was the sound. Uh, through the nineties. And, and I get it now. I didn't, I didn't at the time because, you know, I was busy with my cheesy trance melodies, but you know, now that I finally (laughs) got some groove, uh, I I really feel it. So uh, once again, it's been a a real joy to dig back into the very beginning of this and go through the history of it again. And, and also through all of the commercial stuff as well.
0: Yeah. And it's exciting musically because this is where latin polyrhythms get added into the mix in a big way so uh if you like to move it's pretty fun stuff to dance to or listen to some fun stuff but let's talk a little bit about the history of gay culture and the modern history of gay culture starts with the stonewall riots in new york in 1969 this is when patrons at, at gay bars just had had enough of being abused by the police And, you know, randomly harassed and and hit up for bribes and arrested and abused and pushed back. And that's the start of the modern gay pride um, movement. And it immediately had musical effects that are at the very center of this story. I mean, Brewster and Broughton pretty much start with that. Not exactly, but real close. I mean, the, the modern era of disco basically starts with Francis Grasso and other DJs at gay bars in New York in the late 60s and early 70s.
2: And those places are only allowed to exist because after Stonewall, uh, the cops are basically told to back off or, or at the very least, uh, the community forces the cops to back off and they carve out this niche for themselves where they can exist and, and they fill it and they start having a great time. And they, they basically build the foundation for, for dance culture in these space, in these spaces.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you know monumentally culturally significant and the trunks you know this is there's like what i consider musical trunks and there's musical branches and the trunk is sort of the mainstream that you know many future branches come out of and at this point um gay culture is definitely in the trunk but as um well Steph's telling me i got a cue so let's go ahead and hear our first song this is kiwi dreams why the danny Tenaglia mix from 1994
3: To my heart and that's why I never can see you. Your story is always the same. How can I be with you?
1: If you keep on playing these games, so why can't you be the love and I why can't you be the And
0: that was Kiwi Dreams Why the Danny Tonaglia mix from nineteen ninety-four? Why'd you pick this one?
2: OK, well, just to, just to clarify, obviously, we're still in the the late 60s, early 70s. Everything that was being played at this point was a lot of uh, disco roots, uh, really, really early stuff. But, uh, you know, for for the samples, I wanted to, to pick the tribal house roots that led to Circuit. So Danny Tenaglia's Kiwi Dreams uh, remix of this Kiwi Dreams track has that really impressive bongo percussion sound that really uh, tells you that you're listening to some Tribal House.
0: Yeah, this is not what Francis Grasso was playing um, in the late 60s. He was dropping Iron Butterfly, Led Zeppelin, and Santana into the mix. So, you know, very, very different stuff, along with the James Brown and Sly Stone. And, and, and
2: they were actually playing some world and Latin tracks as well. Because it's, kind of, it's kind of funny that in the disco era, if you're kind of wondering, Tribal House, what's the big deal about, you know, uh, Latin percussion? in there because Latin percussion was in a lot of disco for a while, but it was taken out when house kind of, uh, started up and it had to be reintegrated into the whole mix in the early nineties. So anyways, let's get back to that seventies.
0: Yeah. uh, Back to the seventies. And so, um, then the, there's, you know, and we talked about this, I think last night at DJ save my life covers, the gay scene pretty well up through high energy. And, um, you know, there's multiple bigger and bigger clubs, Salvation 2, The Sanctuary, The Continental Baths open up in uh, 1968. Larry LeVan is DJing there by 1971. He's the main resident DJ by 1973 with Frankie Knuckles as his understudy and and lights man. Um, They both studied under David Mancuso at The Loft as well. Um, And Knuckles stays there until 1976 before he goes off to Chicago and the warehouse. And Larry LeVan then moves to the Paradise Garage in New York. And around this time, The Circuit starts up as a list of places for gay men to go party places like fire island um san francisco obviously is a a big part of that circuit um and it's the late 70s so the sexual revolution is in full bloom aids has not hit the scene so this is this is cruising as the al pacino movie this is the era that that movie is trying to capture And, and and you get clubs like the saint um fire island And then there's also a book, a novel by Andrew Holleran. You want to tell us about that?
2: Yeah. Dancer from the dark. uh, Sorry. I'm always going to keep on saying dancer from the dark because there's the movie and always messes me up. Dancer from the dance is a, is a a really key book. It kind of codified the term circuit. It was one of the first ones to use it, uh, in, uh, in, in a kind of a piece of, uh, literature and it really captures that, that vibe of, You know what it was like in that time to kind of all of a sudden go from being somebody who was trapped in the shadows or trapped in a a lie of a life, you know, trying to live as a a straight person when you know that you're gay. And then all of a sudden finding out that there's a place where you can go and you can be yourself and, and trying to figure out how to live your life in this in this new world where. It's it's just you know outrageous hedonism and and nonstop partying. So it's it's a really interesting book. I uh, I read I read about half of it. I'm still uh, I'm not done because it gets dark, but uh, it's it's definitely worth picking up if you want to kind of understand what things looked like around that turn in the '80s before AIDS really hit and and crushed things back down a bit.
0: Yeah, I mean uh, I have a great deal of sympathy for that generation because they threw off so many things from previous generations that were well past their expiration date but when you cannot rely on the wisdom of your elders that means you're navigating the world kind of like a child and this was not a world to be childlike in you know i mean cocaine was seen as this harmless non-addictive cool drug and and unbelievably promiscuous unprotected sex was seen as this unalloyed you know positive and as we learn, there's consequences to that kind of um behavior and so much of morality is just people who've lived a fairly long time going well i knew people who did this and they're mostly not here now and i knew people who did that and they really wish they hadn't now and i know people who live this kind of life and they're real happy they did and so you know everybody has to kind of uh figure things out from scratch in this period and and a lot of people paid a really heavy price for that so um you know God bless and God rest their souls and and uh, and thank you for what they passed down, including this awesome music and this freedom that we enjoy now. So, you know, uh, hats off to the pioneers from this period. But yeah, it's it's mostly disco uh, as we know it, classic disco through the '70s and early '80s. That then evolves into high energy in in the early '80s. And you know, Bruce and Broughton were pretty good talking about that. And that was a scene that was heavy in New York, London, and San Francisco. And high energy is not part of your musical roots of of Circuit House. What happened to high energy? Why did it not stay well, in the mainstream? High energy
2: kind of did stay in the mainstream. That was, that was the whole kind of it thing. Went too it went to mainstream. Yeah, exactly. High energy kind of got swallowed up and turned into almost bubblegum pop. I remember for years listening to 80s radio and being just confused at some of the songs that would come on and to learn looking back that it's high energy and it makes sense that it's it's really kind of an odd duck but it went fully mainstream and just completely sidestepped you know the soul of house um and it's it has more to do kind of with that uh that euro sound really i mean one one element of high energy that you could take out of it is the diva sound uh diva vocals but but other than that uh high energy is kind of uh doing its own thing
0: yeah, it morphs into something else that, that's outside our story. And part of that was because the equipment it took to make it was expensive and and big time, whereas house was teenagers in their bedrooms getting lo-fi cheap equipment and making lo-fi records that that hit the streets. And, and that's their tradition that became the dominant one uh, on the gay circuit over time. And so you have this section in the notes, the arrival of tribal house. What happened that you consider it the arrival of Tribal House in the early nineties?
2: I kind of put it over to I, I put I give a lot of credit to Masters at work because Kenny Dope was a guy who who was just famous for his his drum programming. And they, they kind of became back in, back in the seventies, you had Larry Levan. He was, he was the guy who was the the gold standard for remixes. If you had a Larry Levan remix on a record, it would fly off the shelves and masters at work kind of became that in the early nineties because of their percussive work. And it kind of morphed, uh, they're considered, they're, they, 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 they're considered kind of straight house or, or deep house but their percussive work laid the groundwork for for then uh, the more tribal sounds that that kind of developed out of it but they, they were the people who brought in a lot of that latin influence and uh and and put it up front whereas before maybe it would be buried in a track they would, uh, they would take it and put it out front and they, they got tons of work on account of this. Uh, at that point, it's like Madonna, Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, simply Red, Bjork, Jamiroquay, Will Smith. It's like everybody wanted a masters at work remix, uh, because, uh, it, it, it sold and it, it really kicked off the beginning of mainstream artists demanding house remixes for their records. And a lot of the times tribal house ended up being that sound that they got given
0: And let's have another musical non sequitur because I'm about to introduce Robbie Rivera's Feel This, the Tribal Sessions Mix from 1999. that was Feel This by Robbie Rivera, the Tribal Sessions mix. Why did you pick this track?
2: Now we're going from before you heard a classic Tribal House track to now you're starting to hear the beginning of what's considered the uh, the circuit sound. That bump, ba-dump, bump, bump, ba-dump, bump sound that just always is going. And and the percussion stops being so much. I mean, it still has bongos heavily, uh, heavily in the forefront, but a lot of the percussion... Uh, Starts getting put on top of the kicks as well. And that's uh, that's a real circuit uh, Sound mainstay. So I feel like this track here is is where you hear Tribal morph into circuit, but it hasn't become You know the, the 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 monster of circuit that we hear a little bit later in all the mainstream remixes where it's not a parody of itself It's you know, it's like dubstep after a while you just get you just find it old but at this point, it's still fresh.
0: Yeah, it's it's confounding expectations at this point. And there's also a key label, Tribal America, that uh, is key to this starting around 1992. Tell us about Tribal America a little bit. Oh, well, they were
2: just, they were the ones that carried the sound. And it, it, it's interesting, while I was doing research on this, they kind of get, Tribal House gets a a bit of crap from modern generations because of the fact that it has the word tribal in it. And some people have accused it of being, uh, uh, slightly racist. And, and while I would say that, you know, tribal house is called tribal house because it came from sampling tribal sounds from Africa and South America. At the same time, you look at a label like tribal America and the logo for tribal America is a, uh, is a, a very, very stereotypical, uh, like native person with a, with a wooden mask on their face and the, and the, and the Shaka shakers. And you're just like, okay, I kind of get that. But <laughs> through, through their time period, they, they were a very prolific label and they put out tons and tons of, of records and you go through the list and, and that pretty much all the names in tribal house that are, that are anything released on tribal America. And there's other, other labels like rhythm section and nervous records and defected who also did uh, lots of good tribal releases, but you know uh, they, they were they were wider. Not everything on Tribal America was tribal, but most of it was.
0: And sort of the next step of this is two guys, Danny Tenaglia and Junior Vasquez, who um, established themselves with residencies and producers off the Tribal Sound. And Tenaglia, in particular, did some time in Miami, and I think that's really key for. How this music evolved. I mean, that's where the Latin influences. You can't be in Miami and not hear uh, Cuban and Haitian and Jamaican. I mean, you get the sounds of the Caribbean and Miami uh, like it or not. What was the role there with Tanaglia and bringing those influences in?
2: yeah, well, you'll notice that a lot of the key names are are Hispanic. I mean, Junior Vasquez is actually not not Hispanic. Junior Vasquez is a is kind of a nom de plume. But uh, we won't hold it against him or anything else like that. But uh, yeah, Danny Tanglia was was down in Miami a lot. He was a key figure in the, the Winter Music Conference, which has turned into, you know, uh, such a such a, a big. It was it was one of the key things that ended up in the in the end kicking off the American EDM explosion was the Winter Music Conference down in Miami. So but uh, obviously Miami full of Cuban percussion, percussive sounds. So these guys were were Feeding off that kind of energy on the floor and seeing how it worked, and it's inevitable that they would take it and bring it back to New York City and introduce it there. And uh, because New York has a bit more of a an ability as a scene to to take a sound and propel it forward, that was where it broke in New York. But it kind of came from Miami.
0: And so masters of work at work have this period when they're the hot remix artist, but at a certain point they pass the torch, and Junior Vasquez becomes even bigger than they ever were. Am I right?
2: Yeah. And one of the, you know, one of the big things that he had was he, he was started, uh, he started remixing for Madonna and uh, he was, he did a bunch of remixes for her bedtime stories album in 94. And that those were, you know, this is, this is not the beginning of Madonna's career in, in picking up hot dance artists or hot dance sounds because, you know, from the beginning she was, working with Jellybean Benitez who was one of the hottest New York DJs and producers out of the city but uh, to to work with Madonna at a time where she was you know at at a peak one of the many peaks of her careers this is uh, when
0: Madonna was still Madonna
2: yeah this was this was right when she had changed from a kind of not a clean cut she was never clean cut but you know she went from that popped and all of a sudden she turned into this femme fatale with uh erotica but bedtime stories was where junior did his remixes and those were a really big deal and a really big hit and this is where the diva sound really you know they start to realize the fact that this is what the crowd loves let's let's concentrate on that and unfortunately for junior his head got a little bit big he made a uh, a kind of a parody track called If Madonna Calls, making fun of the idea of if Madonna calls me, hang up the phone, don't answer. She's just bugging me. She's trying to, you know, she's trying to catch my clout, as the kids would say these days. And Madonna didn't like that. So their, their relationship completely broke down. And, uh, you know, Junior Vasquez has said that he would love to like work it out 20 years later, but she has no Thirty years later, I suppose it is now, but she has no no interest in, in in, in fixing that. And, and to this day, the only Junior Vasquez Madonna remixes that you'll see are, are bootlegs uh, that Madonna shot down. Has no interest in releasing. Junior Vasquez got blacklisted off of that.
0: Ouch. Ouch. But, you know, when you bite the hand, it feeds. That's that's what happens. It's a good track, though. I don't know if it's
2: worth I can see why she's angry, though. Like, that, yeah. that's the thing. Oh, he yeah. kind of he kind of says, oh, she just didn't want me making money off of her name. I'm like, no, you you sound like, you know, you're too cool for her. And uh, obviously it's obviously a diss
0: track.
3: <laughs> yeah. If, yeah.
2: If, if he didn't realize that, then that's the drugs. <laughs>
0: And let's go ahead and take a break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about the rise of the circuit and the impact of AIDS on that circuit and how the party scene changed from the 80s to the 90s because of that disease. And so, yeah, well, like when we did the high energy episode, we couldn't avoid talking about the horrific tragedy of AIDS um, in the gay community and around the world. I mean, it's it's... Part of what made us realize these communities were all of our community, and you couldn't just ice this off. You know, every every AIDS casualty was somebody's son, somebody's brother, somebody's uh, mother, sister, father. You know, they they were connected. They're part of the human family, and um, also because of the carnage, you know, and groups like ACT UP had to push it even more. I mean, the 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 Stonewall rights were just the beginning, and gay activism takes another huge leap in the 80s. But part of that was changing the way people partied and the way people danced. And for a while, like right when I came up uh, out of high school, it was not a fun period of time. I mean, everything had to be protected. People didn't quite understand how the disease worked. People were very afraid. It was a death sentence. There was no medication that could I mean, there were medications that could help treat some symptoms, but nothing that significantly prolonged your life and nothing that avoided the death sentence aspect of it. Um, How did that impact the circuit? How did the circuit come out of that scene?
2: Well, it really, really hurt it because the the main, you know, the hotspot of the hotspots in New York was The Saint, uh, which was like a a big super club um, that was renowned for its, you know, Uh, Saturday night till Sunday night partying and there's like a back room where where there was just a whole bunch of stuff going on all the time uh and AIDS hit that club so hard it was a it was one of those clubs uh in the era where it was like a members thing and so many members were dying from AIDS that they started calling it the saint's disease after the club so it goes to show you how tied up it was in in the nightlife scene and obviously in the kind of risky behavior that that before was just you know just seemed like a, a bit of good you know fun and now all of a sudden had a had a potential death sentence attached to it so the saint shut down because it was just just ravaged by that and uh obviously if you're seeing this happen as a as a gay man you're gonna want to kind of take a step back and and reevaluate there was, there was some interesting when you're reading about this, because there's a lot of articles out there from, from the time that are still archived on the internet from, from people within the scene. And a lot of the discussion that they have from that period around, uh, from, from 80 till 85 or 88, where, where things started, where the circuit scene started to pick up, had, uh, people trying to figure out this AIDS AIDS thing And and not wanting to go out, not wanting to engage in, uh, you know, uh, the same kind of uh, freewheeling uh, sexual activity that they did before. To around 1985, when the circuit scene started to pick up and uh, circuit events started happening as a replacement for all these clubs that had shut down. These circuit events started happening partially as gay fundraisers, but also partially just to you know, uh, as far as one of the promoters of these circuit parties says to like, remind people that we're still here and, and get the community back together and start recovering from this thing. And it's like, they basically took the, the attitude that, you know, it was okay to stop for a while when we thought that, you know, AIDS was just this thing that could might come and, and go. But by 1985, it was still around. And at that point you have to just kind of Figure out how to live with it and and move forward and and make your choices and you know make your risk calculations. I thought that that was just what a what a thing to have to live through and 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 figure out.
0: Yeah, it was um, it was something. You know, I had a gay roommate in college who passed from AIDS ultimately, and a good friend of mine growing up, and and it was very hard to watch the situations that they were in. And the choices they felt like they had to make and and um you know uh, it's they're still missed it's um yeah it, it was a very hard time and a weird time but people you know ultimately life goes on and people continue living And and the weird thing about the circle parties was that there were so many of these that were fundraisers and and they um, I've been watching the Jimmy Savile documentary on Netflix, and I'm not comparing anybody to the horrible Jimmy Savile, but but he had this notion that you know he could do all this charity work to make up for bad things he had done. And to me, there's something – a weird aspect of that, and the circuit parties would do great work for fundraising and organizing, but also were kind of providing this cover for a lot of the behavior to continue that had – caused so much of uh, these problems, you know, played a role in, in in this devastating epidemic. So, right from the get-go, I can remember people arguing about it back in the 80s, and especially in the 90s, and things got weirder and weirder as the 90s progressed. I mean, you had this whole bug chasing death cult kind of thing that was going on in certain aspects of the community, which goes great with hard drugs and and total nihilism. So, you know, this, there was this controversy right from the beginning of this period all the way through. I don't think that controversy ever, ever went away. But as treatments improved, as, as drugs improved and the disease became less and less of a death send, sentence, I think people felt like they had more of a green light to go back to a lot of the same behaviors and, you know, and screw it. People love to do drugs and dance and have sex. I mean, that's what life is all about, you know, so I'm not judging anybody, um, you know, or, or trying to pronounce. I'm certainly no paragon of good behavior on my end, but. Yeah, yeah, one of the
2: good quotes that they had was was one of the person persons one of the people was was basically responding to the criticism of saying they they point out, you know, dr- the drugs and the sex that goes on at these things, but the drugs and the sex happen in in gay life any anyways. And obviously it's, it's the same kind of thing that I say when it comes to rave is that, you know, like the drugs and the sex and everything else like that, whatever you want to put on that is just, it's just a microcosm of life and it's all happening out there as well. And you want to point your finger at this one thing where people congregate and do, do these things. Um, but it's going to be happening anyways, everywhere else as well so it feels kind of silly to to completely blame one element of it so i, I get i get that for sure and and just for the fact that uh the, the, at this point uh, the circuit being initially kind of more of a New York thing, it starts to blow up and become a North American circuit where, you know, you've got ma- major parties in New York, Chicago, Montreal, Miami, uh, all across the country. Uh, and, uh, people are traveling to this and it's considered almost like you no, know, no different than a wedding. You're seeing friends again for the first time in a while. Uh, you know, lovers meet, uh, people, people meet, uh, partners meet, people are getting married you know, uh, as, as they can legally or illegally and, uh, business partnerships are formed. It's, uh, it's basically a gigantic networking opportunity for all of these people to just live their life. And again, th- we're still talking about the, the mid eighties, early nineties, where homosexuality might be superficially accepted at this point, but there's still, you know, you're still having no mainstream acceptance from many of the politicians in the country. Uh, there's still a lot of pushback, you know, you're, if, if, if characters on television are, are gay, they're, they're gay in the softest way possible. There's no kissing. I doubt there's even handholding. So it's, uh, it, there's still a, a big need for the community to have these kinds of events where they can come and feel like they can be themselves their most, most authentic selves, which to me is always being what Rave was about. So I'm when it comes to circuit, I understand largely, not completely, but largely.
0: Yeah. And so let's hear our next track. And this is uh, Madonna's Beautiful Stranger, the Victor Calderon club mix from 1999. been speaking her name hopefully she's not going to blacklist us but that was madonna the beautiful stranger uh the victor calderon club mix from 1999 and i'm noticing a lot of these tracks were from 1999 and the, and the thing simon reynolds was talking about in this period from 1999 was two-step how did this relate to two-step how did those scenes did they interact did the oh, music overlap a not
2: at all, not at all. They were, they were completely different, completely different things as far away. I mean, uh, two step being a, an underground thing kind of in the, uh, in, in the rave area and then circuit being in the cl- deep in the club lands, like even further out in a, in, in the, the gay subgenre area area of, of the club scene. So completely different, you know, worlds apart.
0: Worlds apart, worlds apart as, as those things happen. Um, and then, it sort of pinnacles around this time as a commercial entity. What happens to sort of bring the party to a stop?
3: Uh,
0: I think
2: you know I don't want to blame 9/11. I more blame the internet. Uh, that that's really what I'm I'm going to put it on because uh, again, circuit circuit hit its peak of popularity around '96 and it went until like around 2001. Those that, that was the real big peak, and I, I attribute that to not only the music being fresh and banging. But also, uh, you know, the New York uh, club crackdown, meaning people are, you know, don't have those regular haunts and a uh, like a big circuit party somewhere being a, a really interesting alternative to to stay in touch with all the people in the circuit. Uh, but once the Internet comes along, all of a sudden you have a lot more avenues to uh, to to interact or to be in touch, to get in touch. You no longer have to go to the circuit party to to stay uh, part of the, in in the scene and in the know. And, and kind of be cool. So I, I find that, you know, a lot of younger gay people weren't so into the whole vibe. There's a, a, an interesting term that comes up in a lot of articles about circuit parties in this, that it has, there's an element of body fascism to it, which is, uh, you know, not a, not a new woke statement from like, from people now, this is something that was being written in articles in the eighties and nineties because there's a, uh, there's a real, Uh, When I when I was talking about these events known for their beautiful people, if you watch the videos for the circuit parties uh, that are still going on now, you'll see hundreds of extremely muscle-bound men. Uh, uh, There there is definitely a uh, an aesthetic. That is, uh, the, what exactly was it called? There was, there was a specific term for, for the kind of aesthetic that, that, that they were going, that, that was, that was worshiped there basically. And if you didn't have it, you might start feeling kind of left out. And my understanding now is that this is, this is prevalent through the entire gay scene. There's a documentary called Dreamboat, which is about uh, kind of a circuit event on a, on a cruise ship. And they they follow around you know the stereo the more stereotypical uh, like uh, extremely fit extremely beautiful guy, and then they also follow around somebody who is not conventionally attractive, and, and his situation. And obviously, they're very different experiences. And uh, one of the things about Circuit is that it was basically pushing away people who felt like. Either they didn't, you know, live up to the standards or expect, expectations of, of of this kind of event, or they just felt disgusted by by the general competition at all. So there was kind of a, a pushback from younger generations that weren't interested in it, and that had other out outlets, and also had just grown up amongst friends who were straight, who accepted them, so they no longer had to like find this niche event uh, to to feel. Accepted and to have somewhere to go
0: Yeah, I think that was a big change something I saw personally in the from the 80s to the nine, late from the late 80s to the late 90s is that in the late 80s Those of us who considered ourselves more liberal or progressive we would talk a big game But we still did not want to see our gay friends actually dating or kissing or interacting in those ways You know unless we went to a gay bar to dance and to sort of gawk or slum or whatever And we knew we were on their turf or sometimes, you know, punk rock friends of mine, you know, we would go get dudes to buy us drinks, which is a shitty thing to do. You know, go in there and and just leech off of people and would pull crap like that and then think that we were allies, you know, and then by the late 90s, I think people were more accepting and, uh, you know, like you said, people could could have their social life and their sex life more unified. And also the the emergence of you know, websites, things like Yahoo Chat and AOL Chat um, and sites like gay.com It made it a lot easier for people to meet and hook up without having to go through these gatekeepers and this, like you said, fa- beauty fascist stuff. And the great thing about the gay scene is that it was super uh, articulate and intellectual and there's a ton of writing from within the scene. These debates played out um, in magazines and then online and, you know, go back and read that stuff. No punches were pulled. I mean, people were definitely calling it like they saw it, um, at the time. And, and then, you know, looking back in retrospectives and memoirs and, and things like that. But I do think that, I mean, nine 11 might not have had anything to do with it specifically, but it does serve as this big marker as when one era ended and another began. And I think nine 11, uh, was one of a few key events around the beginning of the millennium where a lot of the illusions we had in the 90s that everything was great and getting better and we're going to solve all these problems. And no, we're not. <laughs> you
2: know? Yeah, and there's a, there's a financial element to it as well because after 9-11, there was a recession and, uh, you know, this, this is a, you know, North American circuit scene, it's not a cheap thing to participate in. And, uh, there, there were, you know, people talking about how the fact that, you know, back in the eighties tickets were $200, uh, which seems like a steal now, but, you know, j- adjusted for inflation, it's probably more like, you know, a $500 ticket or something like that. There's a, there, there's a definitely a price tag to being able to do this. And when, when things tighten up and money, uh, money dries up, there's, there's you know, excess is one of the first things uh, to go down. Like I'm hearing a lot of stories now in 2022 about, you know, festivals week after week. I, I follow this uh, account, the 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 festival, about all of the festivals across North America, and every week there's another uh, festival getting canceled because people just don't have the money anymore. They can't afford to go. So there was, you know, 9/11 wasn't just uh, a big bummer, which it totally was, and it wasn't just uh, the point where instead of, uh, you know. You being allowed to do whatever you wanted to do, and maybe the cop who shut you down to you had to ask permission, and if you didn't, you weren't allowed to do it. Uh, there was also, you know the 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 financial realities of of everything just getting tougher and tighter, and you not being able to afford, you know, going out for a week to miami
0: and one thing that hit me as a small town Yokel kind of poignantly was the talk about how you know the big parties in New York and san francisco and and Miami, survived all this stuff but the parties in des moines iowa or akron ohio not so much and you know that the, there had been a period where lots of communities tried to have a, a circuit party and um those came crashing into all you know when things got cut down those those Secondary cities lost um their place on the circuit pretty fast,
2: yeah, um, even even the big ones. Uh, I went to uh, the black and Blue party in Montreal, which was the big uh, gay circuit event in the city. and it's you know, it's a play on on the black the infamous black party in in New York, which was the which is the most decadent uh, event that there was, but black and blue because Quebec has a blue flag, blue also in Quebec being referenced to as like naughty or dirty. And uh, I didn't even really realize what I was getting into as a 20-year-old. I just went there because my friends were going. And uh, it was it was quite the experience. It was wild. It was the first time I've ever seen uh, people having sex. Uh, like, that weren't me. <laughs> 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 and it was actually straight people because, uh, you know, the event actually makes a big deal about catering to uh, heterosexual people as well. And in Montreal, I think the the French element of it meant that people were much more willing to mix and and not make a big deal out of it. But it was – you know it it was it was wild and people really went for like 20 hours and uh and it was one of the most intense uh rave experiences i've had even though technically it's more circuit than rave you
0: know yep i get it and let's hear our final track this is whitney houston it's not right but it's okay the thunderpuss remix With the late great rock and roll hall of famer whitney houston it's not right but it's okay the Thunderpuss remix from 1999 why'd you pick that particular track
2: you know thunderpuss uh they were the ones that distilled circuit down to a formula and just hammered it and hammered it and hammered it and i but uh this whitney houston track was there was their breakout track and uh, and kind of set them up and it, i feel like it's one that you know any listeners who are are kind of picking up this episode because they have nostalgic feeling for circuit music or whatever else like that i wanted to that's why i picked the madonna track that's why i picked this thunder puss one because these are the ones that that listeners would probably associate with the genre so a little bit of a uh, little bit of fan service there
0: and thank you and this song and this artist i mean so much of the problematic aspects of that era are right in there with this song. This is the period when Whitney's relationship with Bobby Brown and with drugs and the public are starting to fall apart. And we're by this point, I think we had long realized that Whitney Houston, there was a lot more to Whitney Houston than just the polished, you know, all American pop star that she had been marketed as in the late 80s and early 90s. And and we realized that she was having a very hard time. Well, we really weren't doing anything to help her. I don't know if we could have. Um, and the song. I think it's
2: one of those first ones where 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 the tabloids kind of get a hold of it, and we all watch. You know, we saw it. We saw it in a kind of similar way with Brittany as well. Uh, but uh, but yeah, she she definitely got the whole uh, the weird uh, the, the, the the weird. We're gonna take this person, lift them up, and then tear them down for our entertainment uh, treatment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Did the reality show. And just the things people said, and this was early days on the internet, and people were saying horrible things. And then the song itself is kind of problematic. It's not right, but it's okay. As you know, as someone who is a battered woman, um, a survivor of domestic abuse, and ultimately not a survivor of drug abuse, it's still real hard for me to go back and listen to this. I can't I, to I,
2: I, I completely read the lyrics com- completely different. I thought she's saying it's not right, but it's okay because you're on the curb and I'm moving on. That was, that <laughs> well, was my understanding. Yeah, I, I'll have that's... to listen to the lyrics again because I just have the chorus over and over. That's all I got.
0: I, and I'm not saying I've analyzed the lyrics uh, to any depth. And a lot of this is just my sadness at her loss and the way we treated her. And, um, you know, and, and so I'm not saying that it's definitively one way or the other, but, but it's definitely something to think about and and to be aware of and also this scene was one of the knocks against this scene was not just classism but also racism and that the you know gay black men like Frankie Knuckles who did so much to found the house scene weren't necessarily welcome in a lot of these circuit type parties I mean it wasn't the same kind of it was the racism was less upfront and brutal maybe than it had been in the 70s Um, but Still, there was definitely some pushback um for that. So this Whitney Houston song, I think is well selected because it's a banging song. and and Whitney's, of course, great. And um, It's one of those
2: situations where where the remix did better than the original, and the original did really well. Uh, I think another one I can't remember if it was Thunderpuss that 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 remixed the uh, the sting song Desert Rose, but that one
0: it was, yeah.
2: That one you couldn't get away from. There were several of these ones. Uh, Hex Hector did the Waiting for Tonight remix by Jennifer Lopez, which I wanted to put in there, but you know it's more it got more trance vibes to it, baby. So I was like, it's not not quite standard circuit so but there was so many of these tracks that that went onto the charts and if you look at thunder Puss's wiki page and you you scroll through it's his remixes it's two screens worth of artists and it's like four columns uh thunder puss and uh, peter Rauhofer, uh these guys remixed everybody they were they and were... Calderon
0: is actually the one who did the sting. Um, Victor Calderon's the one who did the sting. Song, there you which... go.
2: Yeah, I got a lot of love for Victor Calderon. He uh, he did. I was
0: pretty angry at him for bringing Sting back at the time. <laughs> I thought Sting was good and dead finally, uh, career-wise. I'm not wishing him any Ill-, Ill health, but I was really happy to not be hearing his music for a while. And then go into a dance club and there's Sting and it's like, what? you know? <laughs> yeah,
2: don't hate the player, hate the game. These guys are just uh, giving the people what what they want.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Peter Rauhofer though, because he's he's got a pretty interesting career coming out of Austria, of all places, uh, Vienna, and 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 has a nice run. Tell us a little bit about about him and some of his aliases in particular.
2: Yeah, I mean he he kind of uh, yes yeah, started in Austria, which which makes him like one of the rare European guys for for the scene. Was bopping back and forth between New York City a lot. He'd come there to play and then go back home to to write. And he had an alias Club 69, which, again, I'm sure as soon as I say Club 69, everybody kind of has a memory of seeing numerous Club 69 remixes. If not, I guess this is before YouTube on Napster. Anytime you put in anybody's anybody's name, you'll find some Club 69 remixes. And uh, it's just very, very prolific. And he also had the Club 69 label and a couple others. And he released a ton of music on that. Uh, so he was—he was definitely one of those guys that wasn't just in it for himself. He was pushing a lot of the different artists and music and stuff like that. And uh, unfortunately, he died of a—I think it was brain cancer.
0: Yeah, it was a brain tumor. And um, and he's also—he uh, also went by the cognomen Size Queen, which I think helped to me in my mind at least helped him sort of segue into the electro clash era in a way that, or or laid the groundwork for the the. View of sexual politics that they had in the electro clash era, where it's this kind of tongue in cheek, but also in your face. Um, you know, things like the Scissor Sisters and other names. I, I just felt like the vibe he laid down was kind of a bridge into the 21st century and i'm being circled by helicopters so apologies if that's i don't know if that they're coming
2: is. for you they're coming for you <laughs>
0: finally had enough of my antics or what but um they're coming so let's talk about the circuit scene in the 21st century though because even though it had this commercial peak and then decline it didn't die
2: yeah there's still uh, obviously strongholds i mean the white party in miami uh and uh, it's uh, it's still in palm springs specifically i mean palm springs is is one of the you know after san francisco i'd say palm springs is probably like the number two spot uh to to live if you're if you're gay if you want to like be right in the in the heartbeat of the of the scene uh but but beyond that
0: and the scene is what turned palm springs into a gay enclave
2: yeah, they they went there at first, and they were having a lot of trouble with uh, council members, as far as you know, having a, this reputation for these these parties that were kind of out of control. And uh, over the years, they started uh, you know getting elected to the council for themselves. Well, and money now,
0: talked real fast. <laughs> that's real true while.
2: as well. That's true as well. Now now they 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 proudly state that the entire council is all gay. And, uh, it's something, something, some crazy statistic that I haven't verified, but it's something like half the population is gay as well there. So that's, uh, they, they've really kind of moved in and and taken over in in my opinion, in a good way. I think it's pretty cool, but, uh, you know, like there's, there's still major circuit events across the country, uh, just much more rarely, but internationally, uh, is kind of where, where circuit is really peaking right now because for Americans, it might be passe, and I feel like it's almost this way about rave as well. It's, uh, these days with rave, you really have to serve it to the people, like you have to spoon feed it to them. You can't get them to get on a shuttle bus and ride an hour outside of town anymore to a venue that you won't tell them where it is. Like, that's not gonna fly anymore because people aren't aren't interested. It's passe, it's, it's too, it needs to be easier. But in, internationally, it's a fresh, new, exciting thing, and obviously a lot of these other countries are in different states of development, as far as acceptance of lgbtq uh, issues and and acceptance so they need these circuit parties to to be out and proud and and to to get to go out and express themselves and have a good time and uh, and just not not be in in quote-unquote hiding you know like uh, there's mcqp in south africa there's a there's a massive circuit festival in barcelona spain which just looks from from the videos i've seen online it's just forever tel aviv uh, tele- israel's got a really cool circuit scene and uh, there's a dj offer nissam who is uh, just one of the best circuit djs he's doing a lot of kind of trancy sounds which explains maybe why i like them and then in places like thailand there's the g circuit song uh, event so there's that's apparently the big spot right now is they're developing a circuit scene in asia across asia and different countries because that's you know that's the current hot spot for, for trying to get more visibility and to allow gay people to kind of get out and, and be out more. So in these places, circuit festivals play a really important part uh, to do that.
0: Yeah, and so East Asia definitely on the the front lines right now of, of sexual politics and acceptance and lack thereof. So, yeah, it's cool to see this stuff spreading around the world and going on. Any final thoughts on circuit? How do you see it in its place? in the overall history of electronic music. And why do you think it got left out in Reynolds' and Maltos' accounts?
2: Well, I mean, most of these books were written around, like, 96 or released in, you know, uh, early to mid-90s. So they didn't really see the the, the circuit explosion that kind of happened in 99. And, uh, you know, they were already in their, in their updates, they were already trying to like jam so much into, you know, a 30 page chapter. So I don't really, uh, blame them for, for anything. And maybe they just felt like, uh, as outsiders as we are, that maybe it wasn't, uh, their, their tale to tell, you know, so I, you know, uh- yeah. It's 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 just one of a thousand small stories that 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 had a massive impact in the lives of the people who were there, which I think is the real story of rave. Is it's just you know you'll never hear a podcast about the Ottawa rave scene, which I grew up in and I had a part in that changed my life. But you know maybe it was, we
0: can it was, fix that. <laughs> There's well, people who maybe could help with a podcast about that. But, it's true. It's true. And I
2: guess that's a, a, a good finishing point is to again, uh, thank our listeners for, for reaching out and, and suggesting that we delve a bit deeper into this. And every so often, we'd like to break up this season with uh, with an episode where we do that. So if people have ideas, or if they want to hear more about a specific time or place or, or genre, uh, email us and let us know.
0: All right, and thanks to Drew Morris for making the suggestion. So thanks, Ryan. And next week we'll be back to continue our discussion of The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America with a look at where are we going next week? Oh, we're going to Staten Island and the Storm Rave in the 1992. So that'll be fun to look forward and look forward to discussing with you next week, Ryan.
1: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at Podcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate return to The Underground is Massive to discuss developments in New York City and the East Coast in 1992. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.